I'm Karen Lewis, and thank you for listening to Recovery Bites, real talk with recovered professionals. This podcast is about life in recovery from an eating disorder. The good and the not so good. The successes and the challenges. Episodes will include stories from fully recovered professionals about the sometimes sad, sometimes painful, but always beautiful accounts from their recovery. Not their whole story, just bites. All right, everyone. We're in for a super fun show today. My guest is Dr. Sarah Chips, who is a dear friend and colleague, and she is just wonderful to speak with about eating disorders, substance abuse, trauma. We absolutely had to title this podcast, The Slower You Go, The Faster You Get There. Sarah wrote about that in her paperwork, and as soon as I read it, I thought, that's a title for this episode. That's what recovery is all about. You have to slow down, feel your feelings, remain present, and that's how you move into recovery. Now, we all know that one of the functions of an eating disorder is to get instant gratification from a feeling, a thought, an emotion, a sensation. So it's one of the reasons why it's so hard to work through this. We are asking you to go against what you've been using for so long. We're asking you to slow down, feel your feelings, be curious about your emotions and thoughts, understand sensations, be mindful. Very, very difficult when you've been struggling with an eating disorder. We also talk about what it feels like when you feel like you're quote unquote outside of the connection. For Sarah, it was actually outside of the connection of her parents and how that played out for her as she got older. We talk about how recovery cannot be done perfectly. We talk about finding a community to help with recovery. There's so much that we are gonna be exploring in this one hour, and I swear Sarah and I could have gone on for two hours. I hope you enjoy the podcast as much as I enjoyed recording it. All right, everybody, here we go. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Recovery Bites, Real Talk with Recovered Professionals. I could not be happier to introduce you all to our guest this week, Dr. Sarah Chips. Sarah, welcome to the show. Hi, it's so good to be here. My heart is so full. And as I say to listeners every week, if you could only see the beauty that I see through these Zoom calls while we're recording. So Sarah, can you tell the listeners a little bit about who you are and what you do? Sure. I am a psychologist. Uh, I live in Brooklyn and I have uh, a couple of projects that I'm involved in. One is uh, Well Williamsburg, which is a group practice that I am uh, the clinical director and founder of. It's in, in Williamsburg, and uh, I have a number of clinicians there. We all specialize in treating eating disorders, uh, and many of us are also recovered. Um, and then I'm just launching right now, which I'm super excited about, an intensive outpatient program the treatment of PTSD. And I'm doing that with Greta Gleisner. It's called Sanctuary. And uh, it will be at Columbus Circle, around Columbus Circle in New York. We have an office, but uh, right now we're just virtual with the COVID situation. So that's what I'm doing right now. And I've treated eating disorders for a number of years. I used to be a clinical director at um, Montanito 
eating disorder uh, treatment center and, uh, and, and then have been in private practice for a while too. Yeah. And Sarah, that's how you and I know each other so well from working together. So it is so wonderful just seeing your face. Sarah, I guess what I would like to start with, and this this is really jumping right into the podcast, but what do you notice when you when you're looking? You said you said that that sanctuary is focusing on PTSD. We do know that there's a lot of trauma when when we're working with eating disorders. Can you tell me a little bit about the intersection of the two? Is it something you can even talk about? How how does it present? How do you work with it? Or from your own experience? Sure. Yeah. You know, um, I. I think when I started treating eating disorders, uh, I was working in college counseling centers and I uh, just uh, started seeing um, that there was almost always some kind of trauma. And when I say some kind of trauma, I, I mean, I don't necessarily mean like, you know, what they call the big T traumas all of the time, like car accidents and assaults and uh, war and these things that, you know, are, are typically um, cited as, as big traumatic events, but also like relational trauma. And uh, even the, the trauma of having a, a parent who uh, wasn't completely present during one's childhood. They, they couldn't uh, engage in kind of the mirroring uh, and attentive processes that, that infants and children really need. And so um, I, you know, going along treating eating disorders, I, I noticed this as as a as a theme, and certainly there's data to back it up that, that trauma often is comorbid with eating disorders. And uh, as a result, I started getting trained in a lot of trauma therapy. So I'm trained in EMDR and somatic experiencing and in cognitive processing therapy. And uh, so I was doing these trauma therapies with people. And, uh, and I think that uh, it, it, it makes a lot of sense to me that eating disorders would be a result of trauma because uh, they're, eating disorders are a way to regulate one's emotions and regulate one's experience to gain control over one's experience and one's body especially uh, when somebody has uh, lost control of one's body to somebody else in the process of, of being traumatized. Uh, and, uh, it, and certainly uh, I uh, have worked with patients who have very specific uh, eating disorder behaviors that are linked to very specific traumatic experiences. Um, but I think this kind of general sense of having control over what someone puts into their body having control over what someone does with their body and uh, regulating one's emotional experience um, often through uh, the, the numbing processes, the, the numbing experiences that can come with different eating disorder uh, states. You know, it's interesting. I'm so glad that you brought up the difference between big T trauma and little T trauma because I do think there's a misconception that we're only talking about big traumas, like you said. And the little T traumas, and I'm going to use my own experience, the little T traumas are so, I don't know if I want to use the word damaging or powerful, because from my experience, I, I had an anxious personality when I was much younger. And so Everything felt like a threat to me. So I wasn't literally in any kind of physical, sexual, any kind of actual threat, but there was so much in my life that I perceived that I was constantly having these little traumas. And because nobody else knew they were happening, nobody said to me, are you okay? Is everything okay? Do you want to talk about something? So instead, I just learned to bury it and keep playing on the playground or, you know, talking with my schoolmates or whatnot. And those traumas get incredibly buried in the psyche. I don't know if you have any 
thoughts about that? I completely agree. I think that uh, there's something about the loneliness of the the, the small teeth traumas and not having support around them Uh, and uh, feeling invalidated or even just othered as a result of feeling so anxious. And certainly that was my experience as well. Um, And uh, I uh, had, you know, some experiences of uh, not having parents that were super present all the time. Um, and, uh, that, uh, kind of, uh, whether it's like, because your parents are working a lot or using substances or, uh, really distracted with their own, uh, interpersonal conflicts and problems, uh, not having attentive caregiving in your formative years and and having and not having somebody to come to you and say like what's going on or noticing that something is wrong uh can be i think uh, very very powerful and and i think it's uh further invalidated that experience by our cultural kind of uh mores or um myths that we are supposed to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and be very independent and that we don't need anybody else. And, uh, that we, you know, women shouldn't need partners, you know, that we can just, which is great for, you know, I'm not saying that's not, but we need people, right. We need other people to support us. We need connection. We are, uh, very relational beings. I think it's interesting. And, I'm going to say something, and I guess I'm going to ask you if it's correct, which I guess if it's my experience, it was correct for me, but I had an opposite experience where I didn't have parents that were neglectful. I had parents that were, I don't want to use the word overbearing, but they were overly protective. Let's say that. I'm also the youngest and the only girl, so I was incredibly smothered. And my mom, who everyone knows on this podcast, I love more than anyone in the world, because by the way, my parents were doing the best that they knew how. So this isn't about blaming parents, at least in this situation. My mom used to say to me all the time, oh, if I could just wrap you up in cotton and protect you from the rest of the world, that would make me so happy. And I thought, what the hell is wrong with the rest of the world? Oh, if I could just keep you my little girl forever. It's not, or it's not you that I don't trust. It's everyone else. And I'm like, wait a minute. I don't think I can trust people. So as I got older and started moving into adulthood, the world became somewhat of a traumatic place for me because I was petrified. That's why college was a very, that's why one of the many, many reasons that I did not make it through college, you know, sequentially because I had to be taken out because of my eating disorder, because I was so afraid of the world. And again, I don't know, I'm not, I don't know if I'm asking you like, was my feeling, was my experience correct, Sarah? But is there anything about that, that, that you say, yeah, that, that can happen. Absolutely. And I think that's a really good point, right? I have, we each have our own idea of you know, how our eating disorder happened. And I think that can become a bias, especially as therapists, that we're looking for those kind of themes or we're looking for those kinds of situations in, in our clients. You know, it's like an implicit bias that we have. Uh, but it sounds like for your situation, you were fed this narrative, this cognitive belief, and you internalize that because of course, like- Because I have an anxious. And, and I didn't mean to interrupt, but because I already come having, I was born with an anxious personality. So these, so keep going. I did, I go ahead. <laughs> yeah. So it made sense. And, and it's coming from a trusted source coming from your mom. And uh, this would be an, you know, an example of uh, potentially manufacturing some anxiety where you don't have maybe evidence that other people are harmful or other people are uh, dangerous, like concrete evidence. You have, you have stories, you have ideas about that. Uh, but uh, specific people or specific situations, you, you don't 
you don't know, but you're fearing them because you're telling yourself, I should be afraid. I should be afraid. It's, it's unbelievable the narratives that we do make up in our mind. And especially when we're talking about trauma and young children, because of the way the brain grooves are being developed and everything is being internalized. And then that does become almost your truth or it does become your truth. You know, it's, uh, I think it's, you're right because of childhood development that, that those truths are more uh, easily ingrained and and, uh, become such a part of our worldview for our lives. Um, And uh, that can happen at any point in someone's life where a traumatic event happens uh, and then it becomes generalized to the, the fear becomes generalized. And it comes from this really evolutionary place where, you know, we go down to a water hole a long, long time ago, right? We go down to a water hole and there's a bush and out jumps the saber-toothed tiger and we run away and we get away. And the next time we go down to that water hole, we hear a bunny rabbit in, in that same bush and we run away. And our brain says, oh, we kept you safe because it could have been a saber-toothed tiger, right? It's better to have a false positive than being eaten. And, uh, and what happens in PTSD is that suddenly all bushes have a saber-toothed tiger in it in our brain. It's a way that our brains are trying to keep us safe, but then our world becomes smaller and smaller because now we can't go near any bush. Every, bu- every bush is, is a danger. So then we're just hiding out in our cave alone. Mm. And as we do that and we're isolating, that's also when eating disorder behaviors thrive in isolation, fear of being out. Also, for you, I'm wondering if that's when substances came into the picture, because that's another common theme with eating disorders and trauma, substance abuse. So I don't know if you have anything to say to that. Yeah, you know, I think my... uh Substance use was uh, informed by a couple of things. And that was my parents smoked weed when I was growing up. And uh, certainly I think that was not the worst thing that a parents could do. And I think it's fine for many people. Um, but my experience as an only child was that I was uh, not paid a lot of attention to because they were hanging out and they were smoking weed together. And, uh, and it was a, it's certainly like, non, you know, violent, not, not volatile, peaceful existence in this hippie vegetarian household. But, uh, but I was outside of the connection. And so what I learned from that was, was two things was that if I want a connection, I needed to use substances to get it. That's how people connected. And two, that was how they un, like unwound from their days. That's how we regulate emotions in the family. And so uh, the eating disorder and the substance abuse for me serve the same purposes. Uh, Well, the same purpose of emotion regulation and managing my feelings and fears uh, and yearning at the same time for connection. So in the eating disorder, I was able to just hang out with my eating disorder. And, and that was a very stable relationship with one's eating disorder because you know it. And uh, it's egocentric. It makes, you know, you feel good about yourself because if for, for me and my eating disorder, I was um, being kind of restrictive and rigid. And so uh, I, was, I was gaining from that a sense of self-esteem because I was being productive and uh, I was right, being uh, better than other people. Um, and, and then in my substance use, sometimes I I would use alone a lot. Uh, and then sometimes I was able to use substances to buy friends. So if I had drugs, other people would come over. If I, I would never show up to a party without, um, drugs for other people and drugs for myself that I had hidden. Right. So I could both do it by myself. I could have this stable relationship with the substance that, that, 
I wasn't going to get rejected from. I, they, substances will never abandon you. Um, and I could maybe take a risk and try to connect with other people by sharing my drugs with them. Does that make sense? It makes a tremendous amount of sense. Tremendous. So walk me and walk listeners through how do you recover? Where do you begin? Do you begin with substances? Do you begin with eating disorders? Do you do them together? Can you share a little bit about that process? Yeah, you know, I did not do this perfectly. And if I could go back and do it a different way, I would. I just did not have the resources or the knowledge uh, to do it. I can, but I will share what happened to me and how I managed that. Uh, I would switch my eating disorder with substance abuse. So I have a couple of years on my eating disorder, a couple of years on my substance abuse. Would get really scared of the substance abuse. Go back to the eating disorder. And that went on for mm, maybe 10 years, uh, from like 15 to 25. And uh, through that time, one thing uh, that happened was that I uh, started hanging out with people who uh, were also substance users, primarily people who smoked marijuana. And one of the great things about my friends at that time who smoked weed was that they loved burritos. And we would go to, I was living in uh, San Diego and then San Francisco at the time. And we would go to the taqueria and I would watch my friends at first. I would watch my friends who seemed to be in normal sized bodies, who seemed to have the kind of uh, gregarious personalities and uh, kind of cool life and were nice people. And I wanted to be one of them. Like I, I also wanted to have fun. <laughs> and so I would watch them eat these uh, big burritos and I would get, you know, like a side of rice and I would kind of pick at it. And then eventually I was like, I want a burrito. And so I gained the weight through hanging out with normal eaters and just not wanting to be, uh, you know, uncool. There's also something about San Francisco because San Francisco was a pivotal point for me in my recovery process. I also want to say there's no better Mexican food than in San Diego. Well, probably Mexico. I should probably say that. I'm saying here in the United States, it is to die for. Um, I remember so, and I'm also not encouraging all listeners to be like, oh my God, I'm going to move to San Francisco and be recovered. Doesn't work that way because first of all, wherever you go, you bring your eating disorder with you or your substances or whatever it is. It just depends when you're ready. And I tell this story about, I wanted so badly to live the life that my friends were living. And I thought my eating disorder was going to get me there, which by the way, I often say on this podcast, it wasn't until I gave up my eating disorder that I got everything I'd actually really wanted in life, couldn't get it in my eating disorder. I remember my next door neighbor was having a party and I was going through a grunge period. So for any of you who know me, I am not grunge, but I was for this like year or whatever. I was going through a grunge period and I would dress grunge and my hair look grunge. But the reality is it took me like two and a half hours to perfect that grunge look, which is the antithesis of grunge, right? Grunge is like rolling out of bed and like putting on your clothes and whatnot. I like perfected it like I was going to be a TV character in grunge. And I went next door to my neighbors and she was having a party and all these friends who I loved so much, different sizes, different ethnicities, different genders, like, like orientations, everything, the most beautiful group of people. And I was standing in the corner, sipping my beer, very 
very carefully because I didn't want to mess up my grunge lipstick and didn't want to really dance because I had my grunge shirt tucked in an exact way. And I kept thinking to myself, what's happening here? And I watched my friends as they're dancing and they're sweating and they're scooping in chips and guacamole and chugging beer and laughing. And I thought, what's wrong with this picture? That's what I want, but I'm standing in the corner watching it. But the thing is, Sarah, I didn't know how to get there. I thought, how do I get there to that side of life, which is actually just really being fully lived? And it's funny because there is something about being around people that do not have eating disorders. I remember thinking, how is it that my friends are getting so sweaty, their stomachs are getting bloated from beer, and they're probably like all going to go home and have sex with their partners? Like, aren't they going to be concerned? Like, do they smell? Is their stomach bloated? I don't want that life. So it, it is something of, I just, I just felt like I wanted to add that story. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I almost, you know, am so, I'm so grateful for uh, substances and for that period of my life, because as messy and as painful as it was, and I was, you know, drinking a lot, I was dating some guy who uh, ended up being my husband later, but he was in a bunch of punk bands in San Francisco. I don't know anything about punk. Like I only listened to 90s hip hop and I don't like it at all, but I could go to the punk show there'd be cocaine, there'd be marijuana, and there'd be a lot of alcohol. And I just, in bottoming out, I had to lose all of my perfectionism. Like I was a mess. I was bloated. I was sweaty. I was like, my I, my skin was like out of control just from, the, like I looked a wreck. One of my friends, I remember we were taking the bus in San Francisco to work and we both worked at this software development company and it was like 7 a.m in the morning and he was like you smell like a homeless person <laughs> and I did I just smelled like like alcohol and cigarettes you know and I was such a perfectionist I was like straight A's get up at 5 a.m do my exercises go take seven classes in college you know like every so perfectionistic so organized everything had little tabs and after college, I was just like, I can't do that anymore. I'm just exhausted. And I fell apart. But that made, that gave me an experience of like, oh, it's okay to be messy. I had more friends than I had ever had, you know, in my life during that time. People liked me even though I was messy, even though I was bloated, even though I smelled like a homeless person. You know? But people liked you because you were real, authentic in the moment. They also liked you more than just a, and I don't know why we keep going to the bloated stomach. So I just want to apologize if that's triggering for anybody, but people liked you for you, for your heart, for what you talk about, for what you value, for your sense of humor, which is by the way, like my most favorite thing about you is your super dry sense of humor. And so what we, what, at least again, from my experience, what I saw as messy was actually just being in life. And I had to understand that because like you, I mean, who spends two and a half hours trying to look grunge, <laughs> a perfectionist and an imposter, somebody who does not know who they are. Right. So, so did you, going back though, to talking about substances and eating disorders, you said it was kind of whack-a-mole and that frequently happens. So is there something you could tell listeners that you had to move through in order to say, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to work on both. Like how, how did that happen? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, when I was 25, I uh, bottomed out and I, you know, did not have as low a bottom as some people have. I still, you know, had a place to live and a job and, and all that and a relationship. But I just would look at myself in the mirror and I thought, 
I cannot trust myself. And that was the most disturbing thought to me. I could not trust myself to make a plan not to use for one day and follow through with it. And so I, so I checked myself into rehab and I went to rehab and, uh, in rehab, I tried to use my eating disorder again. I tried to go back to, uh, restricting. And I remember it was like a hospital setting. It was not a nice rehab. It was like in a hospital and you would get the hospital card with the meal. You check off what you wanted and like this tray would come for you. Uh, and I was checking off far too little things. And uh, I had not been restricting for many years. And they caught me. And they said, no, no, no. And I said, okay, fine. So I just ate. And uh, when I got out of rehab, I did probably the, the most important thing I've ever done in my life was I went to AA. And what I needed to do in order to conquer both of these things, and it wasn't really intentional, Karen. And this is why I say like, I, I didn't do this perfectly. I didn't do this with a lot of awareness. It just kind of happened. But what I think happened was these reasons I was using drugs and alcohol and the eating disorder had to do with relationships. And they had to do with my fear of relationships, primarily of being rejected or othered uh, and not being a part of. And, and my, uh, at the same time, really yearning for connection. And I found that, I found what I needed in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. Not every, I don't think that Alcoholics Anonymous is for everybody. I'm not like some fundamentalist where like, if you don't go to AA, you're going to drink and die. But that's what worked for me. And, uh, and I had to practice social skills in AA. One of the great things about where, and I got sober in San Francisco, which I still think is like the best AA in the world. When you raise your hand as a newcomer in AA, women come up to you, give give you their numbers and offer to take you to other meetings. They kind of force you. And even at like, I was so socially anxious, but they kind of force you into uh, just being with people. And then they pick you up and they take you to a meeting and then you have to raise your hand again as a newcomer. And then more women come up to you and they're nice. They don't want anything from you. They're, they just see that you uh, are suffering and they want to lift their sister up. And uh, at first I was so, I remember sitting in a meeting and hearing everybody around me, all these groups of people who knew each other and were being really friendly with each other. And I didn't know anybody and I would sit and I would just get so anxious that I would have to go outside and I would always bring a pack of cigarettes, but I would never bring a lighter. And so if I had cigarettes and, you know, I think that cigarettes are like the worst thing, but this was just where I was at in my life at that point. Like all I could do was have this transitional object. So I could offer people cigarettes I could ask for somebody for a light and that was a way for me to start talking with people. Like I all, the only way I knew how to connect with, with people was through substances, but over time that changed and I don't feel social. I speak at meetings all the time. I go to AA meetings all the time. I have a lot of friends there, but I needed to have that period. Like I was able to like, they met me where I was at. It didn't have to be perfect. And I think that's, you know, one of the myths of recovery is that it like it has to be perfect. Or if you don't do X, Y, and Z, um, then it's not going to work. And it's just messier than that. And you learn these lessons along the way and you make mistakes and you do things that you're, you know, later ashamed of or that you would never prescribe for a client. You know, (laughs) I would never tell one of my patients you should go get a pack of cigarettes and stand outside an AA meeting and like offer people cigarettes to make friends. But that's how I got through. And I've been sober for 14 years now. And I stopped, I never used my eating disorder after, after getting recovered from drugs and alcohol, because I was, I got connected to people and, 
and I had real relationships. There's a few things that are sticking out for me right now. First of all, it's called community. You had community or a village or a tribe or sisters, whatever you want to call it. You were seen for who you were, just like you said, that's pretty powerful, not what you could give people. You were given a structure, which is probably very important for you. And you also, it, it leads me to something that you wrote about in your paperwork that makes me think of this is you said, and this is beautiful. You said, the slower you go, the faster you get there. First of all, I want to hear about that because that's couldn't be more correct from my mind's eye, but you're not saying the most perfect way to go is the way to get there. You're not saying there is no messiness in this in order to get there. You're just saying, slow down and you will get there. And by the way, eating disorders and substance abuse loathe things that take time because it's, it's, it's uncomfortable. You want an immediate feeling. So is there anything you want to say about that? Cause I loved that when I saw that. Yeah, I think, I think you're, you're touching in on why it's so powerful to go slowly with yourself because first I think you have to feel the feeling you can't if you reach for something impulsively or quickly to get rid of the feeling then you actually don't process it and I had relational trauma I had this feeling in my nervous system that I was other than that I could not be a part of a tribe. And uh, that's the cognition that goes with the feeling, but the feeling was more in, you know, in my core, in my, in my chest, this like queasiness, nervousness that would come up for me every time I was around people. And I had to sit with that and sit in the structure of a, a built, structured community, which was AA, but it can look like a lot of different things for people. There are many communities, right? Uh, And I had to sit with people around me, feel that feeling and get curious about it and get curious about if that feeling was actually evidence-based or if it was something that I I was producing for myself. And, and secondly, I think the, the slower you go, the faster you get there. Slowness requires kindness and compassion with yourself. I have so many, I work with so many people who are in, in college, uh, around college age, and they're like, I need to make the best, I need to make the right decision, I need to make the best decision. I need to, um, like, what if I waste time? What if I don't get there quick enough? What if I don't, you know, uh, have, you know, what if I'm a millionaire and married and have a child by the time I'm 30? (laughs) And um, all of that future tripping and skipping ahead, you, you miss out on actually life. I always think about Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Best movie ever. Maybe some of your listeners have not seen it, but he says, and I I don't remember the quote, but he says at some point, uh, like, if you don't, if you don't take a chance to kind of stop and smell the roses, you miss out on life. If you're just like constantly engaged in trying to accomplish, you don't actually feel and it takes slowness to feel your nervous system needs time and space to process and to feel. It also takes slowness, kindness, self-kindness, self-compassion to find something in your life that you value so you do not need an instant gratification, meaning you and I, we we value, like I, I felt myself like as one of those women that like 
went up to you as if I was there in that AA meeting being like, here, take my hand. Let me help you. And by the way, a lot of clinicians have had, have struggled with stuff, which is, and not everybody, but this is why I went into the field is because I wanted to do the same for others. I wanted to take somebody's hand and say, let me help you. But what I also had to realize is it was a long process. <laughs> you don't get here overnight, but it's, it's the, it, I swear. I also think that once I found what I really wanted to do with my life, that was some of the final, final thoughts of pressure that I took off of myself that were some of the thoughts that were st- I was still hanging on to with the eating disorder. I definitely held on to thoughts long after the behaviors. And I don't mean the body image thoughts or the food thoughts, but the pressure that I put on myself, the I'm not good enough, I'm not there yet, the comparison that all my other friends have already figured out their career, they're already married, whatnot, and I still don't know what I'm doing. And so once you find that, but all of that takes time. It takes time to find and it takes time to work through. I supervise people and they say, jokingly, one of the one of the people I was supervising was like, how long is it going to take me to get to where you are? And I'm like, uh, <laughs> a long time, because first of all, I'm not even there yet. I don't know what that means because I'm still going. And time. And that's okay. I remember when I first started working at Montanito. So Montanito was the very first job I got as a clinician out in Los Angeles. And I was the assistant clinical director um, at their day program. And I remember looking at Carolyn and thinking, how long is it going to take for me to get there? How long is it going to take for me to have her clinical skills, her, you know, her way with clients, her way with families? That's similar to my eating disorder, right? I didn't, I, I was, I just had to be in the process. And as I was, I started not becoming her, but becoming me. In fact, it's very funny. Now that I'm thinking of this, she talks about this on the very first podcast about somebody else that she had trained. And I didn't even realize I had the same experience. But it's about slowing down. Mm-hmm. And I think, in you know, I had never uh, had any kind of spirituality in my life, uh, except for, you know, drug experiences uh, that I coined as spiritual experiences. But when I joined AA, and AA taught me that, uh, I, it, it offered me an, an idea of spirituality that was very flexible and very open. And one of the things that, that I learned was, and that I really, I really internalized and really believe today is we are all exactly where we are supposed to be. It couldn't be any other way. And I don't know why I am here and I am who I am now. It just, it, happened that way and it's exactly how I should be right now. Mm-hmm. And that also requires trust in self and in the world and that can be really frightening for people. Have you ever questioned your recovery? I mean, I heard you when you said you started AA, so when you started the substance abuse recovery, and the eating disorder recovery sort of went hand in hand. Have you ever questioned it? Um, I have. I haven't questioned it. I've always known my intentions and what I do in the world and why I do it. And I have very strong values around uh, self care and uh, not hurting my body, which you know, uh, recovery from from either of the things that I've struggled with would mean. Uh, and I've had other people question my recovery, and that never feels good. Um, and that, and when other people question your my recovery, um, I've been like, wait, are they right? And then I have to check myself. I'm like, no, there, it's okay. But I'm so influenced by other people's 
opinions of me that I have to, I, I always have to check. Um, but, but no, I've felt very solid in my recovery since, since I got sober. Do you feel, given your experience, that working with a recovered clinician, whether it's from substances or eating disorders, is that the most effective? What What are your thoughts? You know, I, to my knowledge, I never have worked with a recovered clinician. And I don't think that it is necessary by any means. Uh, and I, I think that every clinician, if they're good, has had some kind of struggle in life that they are drawing from and uh, can can empathize and connect to others' pain and, and struggles. Uh, and I think a, a lot of people really benefit from working with recovery clinicians and, and uh, really benefit from seeing somebody who has walked that path uh, and has gotten to the other side. And, and that can be in- incredibly hopeful for people. Mm-hmm. And you and I have both worked with clinicians who have never had eating disorders and hands down, they are spectacular. So I think that that there's a benefit and it's not a necessary prerequisite. What would you describe? And I know this is sort of shifting quite a bit, but I'm thinking I'm having this image of you. I'm going back to you in San Francisco and clubs and cocaine and alcohol and all this stuff. Bring us to to now. What would an ideal day look like for you as a recovered person from both eating disorders and substances? Well, it's my day off, Karen. So I can tell you, I mean, I'm pretty pleased and happy with the way I spend my Tuesdays. That's the day I like really don't, except today I'm talking to you, but this is really fun. This is not work. Uh, so today I got up at about seven naturally, and uh, I just get up whenever my body wants to. And uh, I go, I went outside in the backyard with the cat and I had my coffee and I got on my hands and knees and we butted heads and the cat like gets really excited and like runs and jumps and plays. And I watch him and I just, it's, it's kind of like a mindful meditation to watch what he is watching and hear what he is hearing. Like animals are so present. Uh, so I have this kind of mindfulness practice with, with Craig the cat. And then uh, now I'm talking to you, but after I get off the phone with you, Uh, I'm going to have some lunch and then my partner and I are going to go for a hike in Orange County. I'm in Los Angeles right now. Uh, We're going to, we're going to go for a hike and then I'm going to go visit my parents in San Diego. who I love dearly. I love them. And so I'm going to spend a couple hours with them and then I'm going to drive back and probably take a nap and have some dinner read some and we oh and then my partner and I will read out loud to each other Harry Potter because we read each other young adult novels out loud and we're on the sixth no we're on the fifth wait there's seven books we're on the sixth book yeah if if listeners could see me right now I'm like invite me I want to be part of this day like the expression on my face is just like Oh, by the way, my entire body, my nervous system just calmed it down while you were talking about what you're going to do on your day off. And it's funny because everything is telehealth. You are not in New York right now. You are in Los Angeles and you are still working. I am. I am. And I just happened to be here at the beginning of March and was had a plane ticket back for the 12th or something. And then it was a mess in New York. So I just stayed here and I can be close to my parents while uh, this goes on and enjoy the California weather because I'm a California girl at heart, you know? I'm actually not. (laughs) I grew up on the East Coast. I was in California for almost 17 years, loved San Francisco, loved Los Angeles, but I'm not going to lie. I love the East Coast. I love the change of seasons. I love being close to my family again. Um, Yeah, I'm an East Coaster. I, I love the East Coast too, but you know, it's like, it's a home, you know, there's something special. Yeah. About being home. 
there is something very special about being home. And Sarah, there is definitely something very special about you. I can't thank you enough for this. I do have one final question, but before I do, is there anything else you want to say or anything that I didn't ask? No, I'm so curious what your final question is. I love it so much. And you know what? What it just, it, it makes me understand how long it takes for me to schedule the interviews from when people submit their paperwork, because everyone's like, what is the question? I'm like, you checked it off. (laughs) It blows me away. Every time people are like, what's the final question? I'm like the question you checked off. So anyway, your question, my darling is if you were a character in a movie book or television show what genre would it be? Man, I meant to come up with an answer. (laughs) Okay. Uh, I think that I would want to be in a rom-com. It's a little bit cheesy, but okay. Uh, I love to laugh. I love funny things. And I mean, especially thinking of like an Amy Schumer rom-com, like I want to be Amy Schumer in one of her rom-coms. I love to be in love and to be cherished by somebody, which is something that happens in a rom-com in the end, right? And and there's like foibles and struggles and like funny, embarrassing moments. And I think those are embarrassing moments are the ones that I learn the most from. So that is a fantastic beautiful, fun answer. Sarah, I cannot thank you enough for being a guest on the podcast. Thank you again. Thank you, Karen. All right, everyone. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Here's here's for what am I saying, everybody? <laughs> so I hope to see all of you again next week for Recovery Bites, Real Talk with Recovered Professionals. Okay, everyone, take care and stay safe. Bye-bye. To wrap for this week's episode of Recovery Bites, real talk with recovered professionals. And I thank each and every one of you for tuning in with me. You can view more from today's episode, including guest information and excerpts by visiting www.karenlewisedc.com dot com forward slash podcast. You can subscribe to future shows by searching Recovery Bites on Apple Podcast, Spotify, and Google Podcast. All right, everybody, be well and thanks for listening to my bite for the week. <laughs> <laughs>